to better the tone from the top around focus on a mental and emotional fitness and well-being. The more that we have that, the more it will really work its way through the organisation. Welcome to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm Petra Belzebor, and this is the place to discuss tips, tricks, and hacks to build your resilience through your worst rock bottoms and get you to a place of success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life, professionals, individuals who've been through their own adversity, and allow them to share their authentic and real life stories, opinions, and ideas about how to utilize our worst rock bottoms and allow them to catapult us into success. Welcome to the show. Welcome everyone to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. Uh, it is a sunny day and I finally have gotten Johnny Jacobs onto my podcast. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Petra. Very glad to be here. It's great to have you post, uh, or sort of right in the middle of COVID-19 and isolation and working from home. And me and you, unlike some people, are pretty much busier than we've ever been, I, I imagine. Um, so you're the finance director very recently of Starbucks, uh, and you're also a trustee for the Mental Health Foundation, I believe. And our paths have crossed quite a bit just through the mental health conversation. Uh, just let our listeners know who you are, what you do. Yeah, so... Thank you, Petros. I'm Johnny Jacobs. I've just recently joined Starbucks as one of their finance directors in the EMEA region. And my background is finance, obviously. Uh, I've worked for various organisations from KPMG through to Heineken into John Menzies, Pladis, a global snacking business, M&S. And I also feel incredibly privileged to be a trustee of the Mental Health Foundation. And I work with various other organizations to really try and break the stigma of mental health and the, the workplace. And I love that you're not only are you a man, but you're in finance and you, you're talking about the mental health conversation. So we need many more of you helping us with that. Do you sometimes feel a bit lonely being the voice of mental health within that sector? Um, there's definitely more voices coming in, which yeah. is which is great. Um, and I think the more the more the merrier. The more we start talking about this, then the more we'll raise the profile, raise the conversation. And you know, I'm incredibly fortunate to you know be surrounded by some incredible people that help me on my own journey because I'm going on my own personal journey on this as well as well as trying to raise the profile of mental fitness and business. I'm also learning more about myself in this too. And there's some wonderful people out there doing you know much bigger and better things than I am. Oh yeah, you're downplaying what you've done though. I've seen you on some pretty impressive stages, but I love that you're the, the, the voice of this within the business sector. So let's talk about that personal journey because I'd often find that people who are kind of adding value within this space have a personal story or they've been through their own setbacks or people close to them have, which has made the, um, the, the topic important and relevant to your world. Give us a little sense of like way, way, way back, Johnny Jacobs, where did you grow up? Like, do you feel like the mental health conversation happened back then as a wee kid? Um, I don't think anybody ever spoke about it. And when he did mention the word mental health, it was probably quite derogatory yeah. at that point in time. I think now the conversation's definitely shifted. When I grew up in, you know, relatively working class family in Glasgow, um, up in Scotland, I spent most of my, my life up there. 
And I think over time, I've seen the mental health conversation really rise in national consciousness, but also be a lot more positive. And it's not just about focusing on mental ill health, but also focusing on mental fitness and the positive side side as well. Yeah, thinking about how we all have a brain and how do we invest in and look after it. Um, what were Did you face any challenges when you were younger uh, as far as just life? Because I know when I meet really resilient people who are pretty successful, that there's usually a story that kind of um, maybe trained them for the time that they're in now. Tell us a bit about your story. Um, well, I think, you know, so I grew up, um, you know, relatively small family. I had a brother. Um, like I say, in, in Glasgow, and things probably weren't, weren't that easy. Um, when I was growing up, I didn't quite fit in at primary school, it's probably fair to say. Um, from reading a, a report many years on, apparently I was ever so slightly ahead of some of the people in my, in my year, therefore couldn't quite converse. And then that kind of turned into a little bit of frustration. And then you'd end up having, you know, stupid school squabbles when you're five, six, seven years old, very young age. Um, and I don't think I necessarily related that well with people in my, in my primary school. Um, and I think I also felt a little bit physically different as well. When I was young, I managed to um, acquire a scar in the middle of my forehead, uh, which has lived with me ever ever since. And, you know, I got a little bit, not quite say bullied, but definitely some negative comments made about it because you're a little bit different sadly a bit like harry potter but without the uh magic, magic powers, powers. Oh, yeah yeah so just <laughs> just, yeah. So just the picking on for being a bit different exactly so i always felt a little bit mentally and physically different and i don't think i ever had that real sense of community and i had a relatively small friendship group as well. what, was, what was the impact of that over time? Did you just get used to it or did it add to maybe your frustration or other emotions? Um, I think it made me a little bit more resilient at just getting on with stuff, getting on with, you know, was at school. I was relatively lucky, I, you know, relatively um, academically gifted. So I was, I was okay um, from that perspective and just sort of knuckled down to do that. And then when I was 13, my parents got divorced, like many families up and down the land. And obviously divorces has a huge impact on, on young children. And at that point, my, my brother moved out and I ended up living with my dad. And long story short, I ended up spending most evenings alone. And that was quite difficult at quite a young age to be quite to be quite alone. So a standard day for me might be doing a long walk to school and then coming coming back and I would probably go home via the supermarket, try and work out how to have some type of meal, then go home, try and work out how to use the oven, do some household chores, dinner, do some homework and try to get out and play some football. And then I would go back home at night and it'd be quite lonely. And I got to a very, very low place as a kid and, and that happened for many, many years yeah i mean and you say maybe it's not relevant in the grand scheme of things but i would suggest that maybe it is because a lot of people who are in isolation perhaps live on their own or their world has shrunk in a way they might be on furlough they might have had to completely simplify every step of their life and and make do in a way and experience perhaps that loneliness i mean what was your relationship like with your parents at the time 
Um, so I didn't really talk to my mother for for quite some time. Um, she she had moved away, and and, and my dad. I, I think you know, like many sort of traditional west of Scotland males, the role is to clearly go out. He had a couple of jobs, make the money, pay the bills, and he was probably less on the 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 parental side, if you like, in terms yeah. of emotional you know, intelligence. Yeah. yeah. All, all of that, and, and that's fairly standard, particularly for that for that generation. But I think, therefore, when you don't have the other half, it can then be quite lonely. And of course, I didn't necessarily have many siblings around, or many cousins, or other. You know, I wasn't fortunate to have a huge group of you know friends or family. So it was a it was a lonely place. And on your point about loneliness during COVID nineteen, I mean, it's massive challenge at the moment, and. You may have seen the even the survey recently about the massive rise in loneliness, even in the last month. I mean, went from I think ten percent of people surveyed up to twenty-five percent of people now say they suffer from loneliness. And that is just a month yeah. of staying at home. So it can have a massive impact. And actually loneliness impacts younger people more than older people, yet and, and clearly that's something that can be surprising to some folks. So I I had that loneliness for quite a prolonged period of time. So I can definitely, you know, it definitely resonates with. You, you empathize, yeah. I mean, you're obviously very resourceful and resilient and have become successful. Um, what do you think you did at the time to begin building that resourcefulness or to manage your own kind of state of mind at the time when you said it, you were feeling quite low? Um, well, very kind of you to say, first of all, I don't necessarily see myself as being particularly successful, but uh, one thing I'm very grateful for actually is just being here because I did get to a very low place, a very, very low place, and getting to this point in life, I do feel very, very fortunate. I think for me, I just knuckled down. I turned it into task. You know, one part of my brain was very strong, which was multitask, get jobs done, compartmentalize. So that could mean I could get through a huge amount of, whether it was schoolwork, I then went on to university. I was genuinely worried if I didn't have some sort of career or profession, I would be out on the street. I genuinely felt and feared that I wouldn't have anything. And that's what kept me going. I remember, I mean, I was the first person in my family to go to university, for example, and I didn't even know what uni was. I remember going down, I, I got accepted. I remember going down to university to meet somebody just to visualize university. I had no idea even what happened in this thing that people seem to call so it wasn't part of your family culture or history to be like, go, and it was more like a work ethic, go get a job, start earning quickly. Yeah, definitely. And I'd always been quite entrepreneurial as a kid. I'd done everything from running a local car wash company when you're 10 years old, all of, all, all of that stuff. So sold the local marbles, small marbles, big marbles, people would come to me. So I loved, I loved entrepreneurialism and I loved that, that commerce side as well and also numbers and and, and the money side. So therefore I thought I should become an accounting and finance person, whatever that was. And I remember my dad saying that one of his friends was an accountant and he had a big house. So I thought, right, I need to become an accountant. That's probably a safe profession to go down. Yeah. I'm good with numbers. Why not? So off to uni I went. And I think I, I knuckled down and just focused on working to try and get the best grades I could to get the job. And that was through fear. It was through fear of not really having enough. 
So I really relate to that, being the first person to get, get a degree in my family and just that drive running away from myself even. So my internal kind of troubles and mindset, I thought if I sit still, um, it may just overwhelm me, you know? So I absolutely channeled everything into forward action, even though I didn't have like a perfect sort of this will be the end game plan. And you're almost coming from, from a survival poverty perspective as well. Like I have to earn a living quickly. I mean, who were the biggest influences on your life at that age when you were younger? Obviously, your dad said something about the accountant that made an impression. But did you have other influences, either, you know, alive or dead or whatever, that helped you think about that path? That's a very good question. And I think I was definitely short of role models. Yeah. Not, not, not because there probably wasn't any around, just because I didn't necessarily interact with or have a great relationship with does that make sense so i think i probably just through osmosis picked up on things around people around me as opposed to one individual or anything I mean, my my grandparents clearly were you know had an influence they were you know fantastic people they were hard workers and very nice people who lived a nice life as well so there are obviously certain people in your in your life but my dad was incredibly hard worker, he held down a couple of jobs. I think that work ethic certainly rubbed off. But there are people all over, you know, my life I probably picked things up from. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it sounds like you became your own, your own role model in a way as well, just echoing that work ethic and pushing yourself forward. So you had a really low time uh, when you were young and trying to figure out your path. Would you uh, say that you've had other moments in life that were, were sort of catalyst moments of those forks in the road, whether it was that same low feeling or something different? I think I struggled a little bit to find balance at university as well. Looking back on it, I absolutely did not make the most of university in any way, shape or form. Because I thought university was get the grades, that's what you had to do. I remember, I was really fortunate. I had a really good friendship group at university. I was really lucky and I got a fantastic group of friends that I very much keep in touch with today. And they would always be out two, three times a week doing the stuff that university people do, much more gregarious than I was, joining clubs to the extent they would be out most days doing things where I was probably sitting there studying and trying to get the best grades. And I really struggled to get out of that work ethic of, you have to focus and get your head down. So at university, I don't think I was the happiest either. I couldn't quite reconcile the, the need to get the grades, to get the degree, to get the job, with also developing the other side of my brain, you yeah. know, on community and building friendships and, and actually building a wider life as well. What helped you uh, learn how to do that or what changed over time? What changed over time to have to, a more balanced life? Yeah, or? to have a more, and I know that people like me and you, balance is always a challenge because we're ambitious and we have work ethic and that's part of it, you know. Um, but moving from realizing that belonging and connection is actually important too. Yeah, you know, when I was, I think it was about seven, eight years ago, I did one of these insight surveys, you know, Myers-Briggs, Okay, self-awareness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We did it as part of part of work. And then I found out I was certain characteristics, so so red and blue, so be quite detail-oriented, but quite quite headstrong. 
and also you get your your report about you as an individual and also about how one would work with me and also everybody else in my team as well and that was a real eye-opener for me because I then really started to understand the importance of personality and actually it was it was back then that I think I realized why I didn't get on with certain people when I was six years old in the playground oh, wow. because perhaps they were more yellow and green or they were more concept or perhaps I was because I'm very logical and maybe I got frustrated with people that perhaps weren't quite as and that's not a bad thing there's just different personalities but I never understood that so I think having gone through that that really stuck with me so I then did a lot of reading and a lot of I went to my own personal journey of trying to understand me and emotional intelligence both as an individual and also in business and I think that was a bit of a turning point for me as well and I probably focus an awful lot more now on friendships on family and on finding much better balance in life as well so yeah talk me through that the the sort of present day and I know we're in unprecedented times as people continue telling me um, and so times are a little bit different but I know you um, in that that the career span that you've had you've had very high profile successful jobs I know you don't like me using word, the word successful but I've seen you on stages come on um, but um, what are the things that work for you? Because it isn't a one-size-fits-all, but you went on this track of personal self-awareness to understand yourself. What supports you to have that balance? What supported me to have that balance? I think I became a lot more cognizant of physical and mental health. And maybe it was just because the national conversation was perhaps increasing in those subjects. And in 2017, when the organisation Pladis I was at at the time, which owned the likes of McVitie's Biscuits, Could I Have a Chocolate, for example, signed the Mind Time to Change pledge. And they were looking for mental health and wellbeing ambassadors. And I put my hand up. You can imagine I naturally gravitated towards that. And I think at that point as well, I picked up a lot of tools around emotional and my mental and psychological well-being as well so I use a lot of those tools that, that that came through that and also focusing on physical health as, as well as, is also really important. Well people forget that don't they that our physical health and mental health are kind of connected right because it's one body and one person right um, so that so is that that's sort of what sparked your uh, higher kind of getting in on the conversation when it comes to mental health? Um, yeah I, well I was super fortunate that I became a bit of an ambassador for the Institute of Chartered Accountants and I went off to the most incredible summit called One Young World, which brings together young people from across the world and discuss a whole host of topics around social, economical, political issues, a bit like Davos, but for, I suppose, slightly younger people. And I came back from that having spent a day talking about mental health and Pladis had just signed the pledge. And at the same time, I was incredibly fortunate. I became the strategy and transformation director for Pladis in the UK. And I ended up becoming the exec sponsor and leading the mental health and well-being program for Pladis in the UK. And that was a real pivotal moment. The stars sort of aligned on those things happening. And we went from five to 120 of the most incredible mental health and wellbeing ambassadors, champions across multiple sites in the UK, supporting the health and wellbeing for thousands of people. And it was just incredible. 
and it became very effective. We really started to shift the conversation internally to really support people in tough times, but also to promote positive mental fitness. And so um, let's just talk about businesses for a second and without naming any, but um, what, what, like, what do you see that just really isn't going well? Because there's businesses that are just behind the times and are not prioritizing this. First of all, what's the downside to not being part of the conversation? Well, let's, well, let's, let's start with the positive, actually, of being part of the conversation. I'm ever, sure. ever the optimist, so glass, glass half full if, if I may. Sure, sure. And if I just build on the, the Paris example that I was very um, fortunate to be part of. So we, we went into that through, there was a very tragic incident that happened in one of the sites where somebody, one of, one of our colleagues at the time, took their own life. And that, as you can imagine, caused real upset and challenges for the business, which then led to the signing of the Mind type change pledge and I think we, we the business genuinely wanted to do something in that space and I think that authenticity is really really important that's when you see businesses yeah. do this really well which is why we were able to have all that most amazing energy come from those mental health well-being ambassadors because they genuinely felt this was something that we wanted to to do in a very authentic and holistic way and the question then is how do you really drive that through an organization and clearly there are things around training line managers and really driving awareness and education and also tone for the top but also about how could you potentially use the brand to even drive externally and really raise awareness of the national conversation and at, at McVitie's we, all, we always felt there was we always felt it was about having conversations and we're better to have a conversation than over a cup of tea. And of course, what do you have with a cup of tea? A biscuit. And the one thing we're absolutely passionate about, of course, uh, in the UK is, is a biscuit. And, and it, but he's, you know, it was born, tea talk and a biscuit. And ultimately that then led to the national partnership between McBitties and Mind that reached 60 million people across the UK last year. And I think that really resonated both with colleagues within the business, but also across the UK on that Let's Talk campaign and, and that Let's Talk conversations. I think they're really good examples. Yeah, um, and super simple, right? Super simple to just focus on the human element, to focus on our need to talk. And interesting that it all started with a catalyst moment. So, so the conversation was sort of maybe bubbling around nationally, but it almost took, it sounds like, and I see this in many businesses, that it takes some kind of crisis for them to sort of wake up to the conversation. Yeah, and I, th I think in some respects, I mean, you know, United Biscuits or Pladis has, has always been a very caring organization. And mental health was always was always a topic. Um, and I think that catalyst, well, I think that was a catalyst to sign the pledge that then led to the next step that went on. Sure, to, to have that bigger step. conversation. Um, what do you wish that businesses would do more of? in order to sort of make it authentic and genuine, as you say, rather than maybe some businesses still doing it as a tick box exercise? Yeah, I think it, it's about that holistic view. It's about resonating within the culture of the business. And I think the more, the more focus from the top, the, the better the tone from the top around focus on a mental and emotional fitness and well-being. The more that we have that, the more it will really 
work its way through the organisation. Um, and also, I think there's that frozen middle of line managers. Mm. And the more that businesses can do to support line managers, because as, as we know, colleagues leave the line managers. That is a, one of the key reasons for leaving a business. And many people across the world, clearly, whilst we know the percentages are huge in terms of number of people that will suffer from mental ill health, over 60, 70 percent in a lifetime, the, the stats are profound. In some professions, over 90 percent of people will not say to the line manager they've got mental ill health issues because they think it might be career limiting. So whilst we all know that mental health and well-being is so dependent upon the workplace and the stats are massive in terms of more than half of us will suffer from some type of mental ill health, most of us won't even talk about it to a line manager because we think it's career limiting. And that also, really, it's a really good point that you say that people leave their line managers, not necessarily the business. And so there's this crucial point right there. Yeah, absolutely. So therefore, I think the more that businesses can do to really support line managers to be more effective and really create environments where you know we can be open, have conversations, and also signpost people to a lot of the really great services, whether it's an employee assistance program. You know, line managers are not there to, to diagnose a mental ill health issue, but they do play a key role in supporting what the culture is within that, that business. Absolutely, and I believe that level as well as that senior level that you refer to uh, can really make a difference by leading by example as well. So how do they talk about mental well-being and mental fitness for themselves? How do they manage their time, their day? You know, like people learn from what we do, not just from what we say, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there are certain things that we can do that demonstrate that we are creating a more psychologically safe environment or an environment which is a proponent to positive mental health. I think kindness is a really good example of that. And that's why the Mental Health Foundation has responded uh, to the coronavirus and actually changed the theme of the Mental Health Week, Mental Health Awareness Week in May from sleep to kindness because kindness, there's lots of research that demonstrates that kindness is a massive de-stressor, both in terms of the person being kind and also the person receiving kindness. And kindness is a great attribute to have as a light manager as well that can then really show that you care about your colleagues and those people in your team. And again, it can be so simple, right? And, and small things throughout the day and also encouraging kindness between people. Um, as you mentioned, the, the sort of times that we're in, I know you and your business are adapting to remote working and all sorts of things. But do you have any thoughts on currently with remote working, how we can best kind of show that kindness or support people's mental health? No more than ever do we need to support all of our mental health. I mean, I sit here and I try to focus on on a daily basis. I'm, I'm sat in the room, I'm by myself, I'm facing into this laptop, I'm on calls all day, and it can get a little bit lonely. You do miss those interactions. My days are getting longer. I'm probably having, I'm probably having nicer mornings. You know, I might go out for a run in the morning, get my, my one point of exercise a day, and then I'll have a nice breakfast. I, I probably never would do those things, actually, going into the office. I just get straight into the day. Yeah. But my days are getting so much longer. And, and that's the challenge. And how do you really close the door behind you and leave work at home, if you like, or leave work at work? It's yeah. actually a very difficult thing to do. Um, and I think the kindness for me at the moment 
I suppose, from a, a workplace perspective is staying connected, you know, really listening, really having good purposeful conversations, being present in those conversations, really showing appreciation is a really nice thing to do. And I think it's really important, particularly because you don't get the smiles and the nods that you might get around the water cooler in the office. So I think we have to over-index on some of those things, creating a sense of community, having team calls. And I think there's lots of ways that we can show kindness. I think that goes a long way to supporting our mental health and, and well-being during these times. Absolutely. And I love what you're saying about the days being longer. And um, I think that's a challenge for many of us. But I've also seen it for employees because I've done lots of manager webinars with Q&A and trying to figure out what the challenges are. And like you say, you can't get the nod or the feeling of the culture as far as when do people go for lunch? Do people take breaks? What time do they leave? These sorts of things. Um, so people end up almost chained to their desk thinking, oh God, my manager might check up on me or call me right when I'm having my walk or my break or whatever, or getting my coffee or whatever it might be. And it, it can perpetuate this kind of fear feeling, right? That, oh my goodness, someone's going to check up on me. And some people's jobs are insecure. And so it, it sort of perpetuates, but can lead to burnout. Yeah, you're right. And that comes back to that psychological safety point. And the first thing that we have said to all of our teams is that we, we recognize we've all got lives. So we have to live those lives and we have to be flexible and support everyone through it. And how many times now do you have a call and you know there's, there's, there's a kid in the background or there's a dog? Fine, it's all, it's all part of it. You know, we should celebrate that. We've all got lives and we just have to, have to adjust to that and we have to be sympathetic and empathetic to that as well. Absolutely. And because we need empathy as well, because we're in some of those situations. So we need to model that by showing it to other people. Um, thank you so much. I have one more question. But before I ask that, uh, where can people find you if they want to connect in any way around your mental health advocacy or whatever your roles are? Um, thank you, Petra. Obviously, you can find me on the usual social media channels, yeah. I suppose. Uh, I I'm very fortunate to be an advisory board member of Mad World, which is one of Europe's largest summits for mental fitness and business in the workplace. So you can find me there. And clearly being a trustee of the Mental Health Foundation, I feel incredibly fortunate to be part of the UK's leading charity for everybody's mental health. Absolutely. Cool. We'll add in, I know you're on LinkedIn as well. We'll add some of that into the show notes, but here's what I'm curious about and what I want to leave people with. What advice would you give to your younger self, the kid who is hustling for his day, figuring out how to use the oven, and on the inside is feeling incredibly lonely? What would you tell him or someone in his position? That is a tough question. I think, I think two things spring to mind. One is, and this is something I would tell my younger self and even right up to just a few years ago is balance in life. I was always through fear so focused on one thing, which is the tasks at hand. And I tell myself to have more fun, you know, let your hair down, enjoy life a little bit more. I also, um, I would tell myself something, but I also tell those people around me. And it, I find it astounding when I look back that not many people said to me at that point in time they knew i was i was lonely i'm sure they must have done but nobody said let's talk and maybe that's a bit about me as my younger self being more proactive to talking or maybe it was those around me encouraging me to 
talk. I'm not really sure what the answer is. But I love that because it's so relevant to this mental health kindness conversation, because often those of us who look the most resilient, you know, and like everything's just cool and we're on it and we're pushing and we're ambitious and all this stuff, people assume that we're good, that we don't need to talk because we look like we've got it covered, right? But actually going beneath the surface and thinking the guy who's got his head in his books or is, is focused in that way perhaps all of us need to talk and we shouldn't maybe only ask the question to those we think are struggling sort of in a more obvious sense. Yeah, and I think that really hit home for me when somebody once said to me, so describe an introvert. And I described what an introvert might look like sat at the desk. And then they said, okay, so describe somebody with depression. And I described at that point in time what I thought somebody with depression might look like sat at the desk. And there wasn't that much difference between the two. And I think that's interesting because unless you really have the conversation or really get to know somebody, it's very difficult to really know what's going on inside. And I think the same applies for somebody who you may think is some high achiever or somebody who's really enjoying themselves, having a great life. You don't really know what's going on deep inside unless you have the conversation or should they may not want to talk about it and maybe that's not appropriate, but you can draw your own assumptions or conclusions but it's actually very difficult to, to really know. Well, and we base our assumptions and conclusions on our own history and our own perspectives and conditioning, don't we? And actually modeling being open as you are today, uh, and as I do in talks as well, sort of helps people then, you know, you must have had people come up to you going, I've never told anyone this, but, you know, you started talking and now I'm talking. So it's that permission and such a profound statement to just say, uh, let's talk. Yes, I, th I think it is, and people like you are a role model to me because Aww. it's people like you and, and, and part of those around me that keep me going and actually give me the confidence that it's okay to talk. So I thank you very much for, for being a role model in that. And to your point, something really profound happened to me a number of years ago. I gave a talk at the Institute of Chartered Accountants at the admissions ceremony, and it was really when I was just starting to talk about mental health and I stood up giving this keynote speech talking about careers and all the things that you'd expect a finance person to talk about at admission ceremony. I thought I'm going to talk about mental health. No idea what I was going to say but I'm going to talk about it. And I was quite nervous, A because it was quite a big stage and I was quite nervous for that but also about talking about mental health in that forum. And I spoke about it and the following day I got a message on LinkedIn from somebody in the audience, really long message. And in it, they said to me, what a big difference that made for me to have stood up and spoke about it because somebody close to their heart suffered from mental ill health. And that always stuck with me. That moment always stuck. And it gave me, I suppose, the motivation to keep going. And every time I do some type of talk, people might come up to me and say something or drop me a message. And it, it does make you realize that We've all got mental health, ill health or otherwise. We should celebrate it. We should talk about it. And it makes a huge difference when you do. So I love what people like that you do, Petra, because it keeps the narrative going and it keeps the that. conversation really live. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, we never know what the ripple effect is, even if people don't come up to us immediately. Just seeing somebody model it can make all of the difference. Thank you, Johnny Jacobs, for your time and attention and coming on the podcast in the midst of your 8 million meetings. I hope you find balance as well. <laughs> yes, it is one of my challenges at the moment. And um, thank you very much. I feel incredibly humbled to have been asked to come on here today. So thank you, Petra. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. Please do subscribe and review on iTunes. Every comment makes a difference. We really appreciate hearing from you. And please do get in touch through petravelzebor.com if you're interested in any training, coaching, therapy, or just to join the community and get more information on ways that you can build your own resilience. Until next time.